Hi, this is Pete Link. We're back at the churchandgospel.com podcast. Uh, while we're at the end of the semester here at Charleston Southern, uh, we um, are still plugging away, uh, producing the churchandgospel.com website, and excited for the content that we have, but I'm especially excited today because we're dealing with the ending of the great book, that is, the ending of the Scriptures, the ending of the New Testament. And uh, what we're going to have today is we're going to have Dr. Ed Gravely talk to us about the book of Revelation. That's correct. Yes. Now, uh, of course, the most common uh, thing you hear amongst people in the pews is is the book of Revelations. And there are a number of visions in the book of Revelation. Yes, it is a book uh, of Revelations. Yeah, okay. So (laughs) I love, it's just so amazing the things that end up upsetting us or whatever. It's like for some people when they hear the, the S thrown in, they, it's like nails on the chalkboard to it them. Is. So yes, or when people say Jude one four, Jude doesn't have chapters. Yes, there you go. Yeah. New but Testament problems. But there's plenty of grace in our analysis of the scriptures. So um, part of what we want to do is just give people today, uh, obviously not a final word on the Book of Revelation, right. but some categories that you as a New Testament scholar find to be critical in understanding the Book of Revelation. Now. Uh, where do we start off trying to understand just what the book of Revelation is and why do we call it Revelation? What, what's happening there? Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the controversial issues around the book of Revelation is its genre. Now, everyone agrees that the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. Um, everyone also agrees that John did not invent the apocalypse. So what is an apocalypse? Well, that's an interesting question. And um, part of the disagreement over what it is really relates to how do you want to understand the book of Revelation in light of other um, contemporary near apocalypses, or do you mm-hmm. want to understand it in light of the apocalyptic material that's in the Old Testament? Uh, I am good. in the latter camp, uh, and that's sort of how those two sides fall out. But when, and all the Old Testament professors said, yay. Yeah, and about okay. half the new. But, uh, <laughs> excuse me. The, uh, an, an, an apocalypse is a, it's a literary form like uh, a like a letter or like a parable mm-hmm. or like a historical narrative, and it, it has certain rules that it follows. Um, you have a, a, a point of view character uh, who is usually shown taken on a, a vision, taken on right. a, a, a trip, uh, or shown visions by some sort of celestial guide. Um, it, it it is uh, generally pessimistic, for example, with regard to whether or not human action is going to change anything. It's, and that way it's different than a prophecy, for example. Right. So when the prophet comes along and says, you know, you know, if, if you don't repent, then God's going to destroy the city. Well, that's, a, that's an invitation to change. Whereas in many ways with, the, with an apocalypse, it is a declaration of the things that are going to be at the end. Um, apocalypses are usually designed to encourage the righteous remnant rather than to, say, castigate the nominally religious, if you will. <laughs> and so there, there's, a, there's a whole... There's, there's, a whole field of study related to an apocalypse. What what I'm most concerned about with my students in particular, though, is them seeing the connection between the apocalyptic literature that's in the Old Testament, books like Daniel and Ezekiel. Sure. Uh, and even if they even if they're not savvy enough to get that, because I primarily teach the Book of Revelation in a 100 level survey, I just want them to understand. And we'll probably get back to this in a minute. Is that when you see an, a symbol in Revelation that looks strange or bizarre or enigmatic? Your first instinct should be, have I ever seen this in the Old Testament before? And if so, maybe I should start there. Right. So, and that's really, uh, you know, trying to figure out what is the proper context for interpreting any biblical book is really kind of the initial skirmish in 
on interpretive battles. And Revelation is the, is this book that uh, it seems that nobody agrees, uh, everybody disagrees, except. Um, so that's the question. How can I even figure out what the book of Revelation is about? Yeah, and that's a particularly challenging question to a New Testament professor at a place like Charleston Southern University. So I have, <laughs> I obviously have strongly held opinions about how to read the book of Revelation, but I also understand that that calls for a tremendous amount of humility. Um, and I'm reminded of that when I realize I'm sitting in front of 60 students and the, the students in the classroom who go to church may very well have been taught a different way to read the book of Revelation that I'm about to teach them. Um, and I don't mind adjusting students' views uh, when I teach, <laughs> but, I, but I also recognize that the method of revelation they learned that I might disagree with is actually a time-honored, completely orthodox, thoroughly Christian approach to the book. And so what I try to do is I, I give them my opinion freely. Uh, I try to be respectful of all the different approaches to revelation, all the ones that fall within the bounds of orthodoxy. But I really just want to give them about five sort of key reminders that will help them, whatever their system is, will right. help them be better interpreters of Revelation, whether they're a futurist or a preterist or an amillennial or a dispensational, or you can fill in whatever Venn diagram you want with all those terms. But <laughs> Now, you're going to have to define some of those terms for everybody listening, at least in a little while. Right. But regardless of those approaches, can we at least agree on what the the general message of the book of Revelation is? I think so. I think that we want to begin, because the, the letter itself is not all that enigmatic at the beginning. I mean, it begins with John seeing a vision of Christ and Christ announcing to him to write letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And there's there's been an approach, uh, there has been in the past approaches to Revelation that even tried to make those letters to the seven churches symbolic of various time periods. But that it's not really in keeping with the way the, the New Testament falls. And so... I think we, if, I think a great place to start is well, we have this letter that are written to these churches in Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. So let's look to the New Testament to find out what it is that we know about those churches. Well, when we read books like Colossians, First Peter, Second Peter, possibly Jude, certainly First, Second, and Third John, we've got a 30-year history of churches that not only have been plagued by false teachers of the Greek mm. variety, the Greek Christian variety, uh, but they've also uh, suffered tremendous amounts of persecution. Uh, and that, that seems to be sort of the, uh, you know, and, and that persecution goes all the way back probably into the 60s, if I read First Peter correctly. So we've got a book that is written to an apocalypse that's written to these Christians living in what we would call modern day Turkey, who are suffering a tremendous amount of persecution. And the book of Revelation tries to put their, not just, tries to put the, the events of their day as in, in light, in, in a spiritual light, but also to put the events of their day in light of the future. Hmm. It is an eschatological book, in my opinion. I am a futurist, firmly. Um, but, I, but that doesn't mean that the, that the author of Revelation, which I believe to be John the Apostle, is not also trying to, in very symbolic spiritual terminology, help them understand the events that are happening right around them. Yeah, so so I guess what I'm hearing is you you don't want a false choice between it's merely about what was happening under a particular emperor versus it's about what will happen uh, throughout uh, the church's existence until the very end. Right, and in fact, I would even yeah, it is it follows it seems to be following to me the pattern of the open letter that you see throughout the New Testament, which means there is an audience for the Book of Revelation. It is the seven churches in Asia Minor, but it is also all of the church everywhere. 
Right. It's as if the author of the canon says, you need to be listening to this conversation. Right. You just read the last, the end of the last chapter of Revelation. You see that very clearly. Clearly, future groups beyond the seven churches in Asia Minor are, in, are understood to be reading this book. So give, give me just a basic idea of the structure of the book. Somebody's listening. They know about it, but they've been afraid to study it. What, how, the book begins with the letters. And then yeah, what I mean, happens? You've got a, chapter one is the vision of Christ, and then in chapters two and three, you've got the letters to the seven churches, mm-hmm. and then you've got three more visions after that. You've got the, uh, the vision of the conflict with Satan, and mm-hmm. that's the one I, I joke with my students. You know, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, whether it's because you've read it, or you've read a Left Behind novel, or you, like I did, grew up listening to Iron Maiden, um, <laughs> you... you uh, we don't claim that. By no, the way. we don't. That, yeah. that, but that's where that material largely falls, isn't right. it? That, that second vision, the vision of the conflict with Satan. So if you're thinking of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, or the seven trumpets, or the seven bowls, or the beast and the antichrist, it's all it's all in that section. Right. Then the third vision is the vision um, where you see basically the the systematic overthrow of God's enemies, uh, and then the final vision, and that leads up to the the coming of Christ and the great the the uh, final coming of Christ, because the second coming of Christ is portrayed several times in the Book of Revelation, I think. And then you've got the final, the sort of the uh, where all apocalypses end, which is God, where God replaces the, the what's here now with the the better, eternal, glorious state, and that's of course um, the final chapters, the final two chapters of Revelation. So I, I know that many people listening to us uh, probably would agree, for example, with the basic outline of the Left Behind series, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, it's not my personal take on it. I, I'm, I'm gathering it's not yours either, but. Um, if it's not a directly linear uh, uh, approach, um, as the Left Behind series, et cetera, would, would suggest, how how do we understand the timing of all these different pieces of the book? Then, well, I think there's a couple of a couple of things to remember. In fact, I think uh, when I talk to my students and I try to give them sort of the five basic things they need to understand we're, to be better interpreters of Revelation, regardless of what what system mm-hmm. they're going to use, I think the first one is for them to they do need to keep in mind that Revelation is not accidentally an apocalypse. It is intentionally an apocalypse. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a literary construction. And, you know, I, I want to speak carefully here, but because I do believe that John really did receive four visions. In other words, I believe that John, it really happened in, in history. John had these visions. I believe they were from God. I believe it's God's word. But I also believe that after receiving these visions, then John sits down and constructs an apocalypse. Right. It, you know, prophecies are sort of spoken first and then written down later. Um, but an apocalypse is a literary device first. So he created, in the same way that Jesus had a spiritual idea he wanted to communicate and chose the parable form to communicate that in, so John had a message from God, visions from God that he wanted to communicate, and he chose the apocalyptic form to do that. And so that means some things. And we don't take God's word very seriously when we ignore the form of the text, which God also inspired. And one of the things that I think is important to note about an apocalypse, both in the Old and in the New Testament, um, is that I would not say they are not chronological, but they are, lo- they are more cyclical than they are sequential. So cyclical rather than sequential. Right. Okay. So for example, if you look at um, when you get to the end of the, the judgments there in Revelation 11, there's this triumphant portrayal of Christ um, and you read that any person who wasn't trained in a system would read that and think, well, that looks like the second coming. And then when you get to the beginning of chapter 12, you've got the birth of Christ and all over again. And so the site you have, right. the cycle is starting over again. And, and so what, here's what I want to tell my students. 
if you if if your interpretation of Revelation depends on reading four through twenty-two in largely sequential order, chronological order, that's fine. That is a a time-honored Christian tradition. It's not not the way I read the Book of Revelation, but but I would just say that if a if your interpretation of a particular passage in Revelation depends entirely on sequence, then I would just say be cautious. Yeah, I think that's that's a good warning. I mean, the standard term uh, many folks were talking about is. It's as if uh, recapitulation is the term. You, sure. You, 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 you go forward, you see, and you get to these moments where it looks like everything is ending, and then all of a sudden it's as if the rewind bu- button has been hit. Uh, to, I guess with VCRs aren't around anymore, but if, right. uh, if, you, if we had VCRs and we're, and we're seeing it, but now when you look at it through the next few chapters, it's as if you're looking at it from a wholly different perspective. It's almost as if someone who reads and studies the Torah a lot knows something about recapitulation. Yes, yes, repetition <laughs> would definitely be a part of that. That's right. So, so you've got, I know from what we just said, in, in, uh, that you've got five basic principles to help the student, no matter what his approach, right. uh, no matter what version of eschatology he believes he has. Sure. I want them to be better readers of the book, and if they don't reach the same conclusions I do, that's, that's fine. That's right. So, number one, you say, understand what an apocalypse is. We spent a little right. bit of time on that. Number two... Yeah, I would say um, they need to understand the primary that the primary sources for Revelation is the Old Testament, and so uh, there's if you get uh, textbooks and commentaries on Revelation, there will be wide dis- wide disagree wild probably better than wide <laughs> disagreement as to exactly how many Old Testament allusions and citations there are in the Book of Revelation, but the number is in the hundreds. At least the smallest number is going to be in the hundreds for a book that only has 22 chapters. Yes. So what I would tell my students and what I do tell my students is if someone says, here's what this text of Revelation means, here's how you should read this passage. If the bulk of what they are about to tell you doesn't relate to here's how these images come from the Old Testament and what they mean there, they're probably headed in the wrong direction. Yeah, and again, the, the, the key word you said before is caution. Right. It's not even that the conclusion may be wrong, but might there be a better way to reach a similar type conclusion if we ask the question, have yeah. we ever read this before? Yeah, and, and even, even with things like numbers, the number mm-hmm. three, the number seven, the number 12, the number 1,000. Right. Um, and I realize there's great disagreement over how to understand some of that, but we find our... I think we should begin at least asking the question, when I see the number 12, I should start in the Old Testament and begin with, what does 12 typically represent in the the apocalyptic material or even in just the general prophetic material in the Old Testament? And the same thing with 3 and 7 and so on. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful that there's a a language that uh, he is assuming we have or hoping we have. And it's 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 key to his design of his book. No and doubt about in it. fact, in some places, like for example, Revelation four and five, in that first heavenly scene, um, it's lifted almost entirely, uh, sort of shot for shot from the book of Daniel. I love that imagery, shot for shot. Yeah, that's good. That's very, so. Da- I mean, obviously, everybody knows Daniel and Ezekiel are a big part of this. Uh, but you know, I would, as an Old Testament guy, push back and say, well. All, what Daniel and Ezekiel are doing is they're, they're talking about the Torah. So, right, they, but they are easily identifiable as apocalyptic literature, and that's that's get, right, and it's and, and it's a good fit. Yep. Now, so we've got understand what an apocalypse is, understand the source or sources for Revelation, and then the nature of symbols. Yeah, that's number three, and this is the one where I always get in trouble, and so I want to <laughs> I want to tread lightly, uh, and I also want to be abundantly clear. Okay, so I do believe symbols. The Scripture is full of symbols. And I do believe that symbols point to reality. 
Mm. Um, and I don't know that something being historical and symbolic are mutually exclusive. So I want to be very careful, for example, when I talk to my students about the Garden of Eden, but there is a tremendous amount of symbolism in Genesis 1 through 3. Yeah, generalization. Uh, yeah, right, so but that doesn't mean for that, that, that doesn't mean I've also reached a conclusion such as Adam and Eve weren't real people or the events didn't really happen. So Yeah, we would, we would affirm they're real. What we're asking about is how is it depicted and therefore why is it depicted that way? Right. And, and I think re- that's helpful. Yeah, Revelation forces us to do that. So because, right. for example, in Revelation 21 and 22, the tree of life is going to show back up again. <laughs> right. And so... We don't, we don't assume that God is doing, uh, you know, arboreal transplants at this point, that that is a <laughs> symbolic representation of something. So my, um, what I want them to at least understand is, is that when you see a symbol, you want to understand what is the reality that that symbol points to. Right. But you also should begin with the assumption that it points to that reality in a non-literal and not even semi-literal way. So here's the irony of dealing with metaphorical language in the scriptures is we want to affirm the literal meaning, the authorially intended meaning of Scripture. Absolutely. But what we're asking is, does he intend to use something as a figure of speech here? Um, and if we look at the small little symbol, the small little phrase, the small little section even, we can ask that question, and we're, we're still trying to seek after the literal meaning. The problem, as you know, Ed, is that there has been essentially no common definition of literal meaning in the history of Christianity. Right. So when people get defensive and they say, well, you're not reading it literally, that may be a correct claim for somebody's view, but it may simply be that their definition of literal is, well, literally different. Right. And it's, it, we all agree that there are these kinds of, I mean, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I am the door, everybody <laughs> understands right. what a metaphor is and, and says, oh, that's a that's symbolic representation of something that is genuinely true about Jesus and his relationship to us. Yes. I would also say, though, that when we have a symbol in the book of Revelation, we should understand it in a similar fashion. Right. And right. so wh- whenever, what I... There's a sort of a folksy understanding of Revelation. Uh, I heard a guy on the radio, we were traveling uh, two weeks ago, heard a guy on the radio that was basically arguing, you should never, as you drive through South Carolina, you should just don't listen to radio <laughs> preaching. But um, he was essentially arguing that the, the, uh, some of the beasts that were described in the book of Revelation, they had like, you know, uh, the heads like lions and tails like scorpions and they breathe fire that, you know, perhaps John was just seeing helicopters and didn't know what they right. were. And so he was yeah. using this kind of, and, and I just think there, there's... I'm going to point to another problem with that approach to Revelation as well. But here, I think the problem is is that, no, that's not generally how symbols actually work. We don't find, we wouldn't say, well, Jesus is not really a door, but you know what? The disciples might have thought he had hinges and perhaps, a, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, a peephole or something. We wouldn't do the same thing. We shouldn't do the same thing with Revelation either. Yeah, so I think that's important is, is one of, when you go back to your discussion of sources, the newspaper should not be the primary, secondary, tertiary source for interpreting the book of Revelation. Not because there's not uh, truth that will unfold in the book of Revelation, but the ability to spot that would be beyond mere human capacity, I would argue. Right, and, I, and that's, that's, for me, that's number four. So, if, right. if, so number three is I would just tell my students, you know, if you have an interpretation of a passage in Revelation uh, that requires you to interpret one of the symbols either literally or semi-literally, I would be very cautious about that. Right. Uh, and then number four is I would, um, I would always remind yourself of the audience. So in New Testament studies, I typically talk to my students about, you know, that there are the book, who was the book written to and who was it written for? And that's not that's a, right. 
that's not a completely, it sounds sort of artificial, but what I want them to understand is, is that um, with Revelation in particular, if they reach an interpretation of the book of Revelation that requires them to be 21st century Americans, <laughs> then at some level you're denying that this book was ever written to churches in Asia Minor in the first century. Right. So in other words, if your conclusion is it's about an iPhone, it's probably not the right conclusion. Right. Or yeah, or if this okay. you have to understand the breakup of the Soviet Union or you have to <laughs> right. understand the you know the, the global growth of China. Right. Right. And there, there's a historic problem there, too. And I want to I want to tread cautiously, but Correct. it's easy for us now. We, we all do it. We, we look back through the history of Christian civilization at everybody who tried to interpret the book of Revelation in light of their own day. And we laugh at them. So in 1800, people thought the crowning of Napoleon a thousand years after uh, the crowning of uh, Charlemagne. Clearly, this must be. The yeah, end. Exactly. Um, they thought it at world, during World War One. They thought it during World War II. Uh, Martin Luther was convinced he was living in the age of Laodicea. And the Munsterites were convinced that Jesus was going to come back to Munster, Germany. Um, and it's easy for us to sort of look at that and sort of mock even and laugh. Right. Um, and we, that's probably not what we should do. Uh, but, but then we turn right around and we do it ourselves. And we say, oh, well, you, you know, now that we know what's going on with Israel, now that we realize what happened to Israel in 1948 and 1949, now that we understand the Six-Day War, now that we understand the fall of communism, now we really understand the book of Revelation, I would just be cautious. If this book really is comfort and encouragement, taking the events of their day and putting it in light of spiritual reality, as well as the future, I am a futurist, um, then... I, it, it seems sort of odd that we would have to then wait 2,000 years. The people to whom it was written couldn't understand it. Mm, and I just, I, I, that seems to me to sort of defy the way the New Testament normally works. There's nothing in the book of Romans, for example, that 21st century Americans, you have to be a 21st century American to know that the Romans couldn't know. Right. And so this is, this is really where we decide whether the center of our interpretation is going to be in the text or in ourselves, and everyone's tempted to make it about ourselves. I mean, that's just how we are as selfish humans, but nonetheless, we want to seek after the text. So your final principle uh, is trying to connect all this strangeness to actually being God's Word. Right. It's interesting. I, um, I get a lot of interesting questions at the end of my lectures on Revelation from both our Christian students and our non-Christian students, mm -hmm. and they're both having trouble connecting the same set of dots, which is, well, if... If it is a literary construction, in other words, if John sat down to write an apocalypse, um, if it contains these enigmatic symbols and all those sorts of things, what, why, what do you say about the book? And, and of course, I say it's the, it's the 27th book of the New Testament. It's apostolic. It's the Word of God. I mean, I say all of those things. And I would, in the same way that when we look at a parable and we say, oh, that parable does these things that a parable does— it's talking about an imaginary person, for example. It's setting up an imaginary scenario in order to communicate. It has lots of repetition in order to communicate a truth. We wouldn't say, oh, well, since it's about an imaginary person, it must not be God's word. No, it just is a good parable. And an apocalypse is the same way. I would never, I wouldn't say the book of Revelation is fictional by any stretch. Um, I believe it's, it's true and it's God's word, but it does also have to be an apocalypse. And in fact, the degree to which it's a good apocalypse is part of it being God's word. So, I, you know, it's the language of revelation is delivered in cryptic language, dreams, visions, numerology, all that kind of stuff. And that doesn't mean that it's not true. Just like we wouldn't say a parable's not true. Uh, it just means that it's a, it's a good apocalypse. 
Yeah, so what we're wrestling with here is what is the kind of truth claim that the book of Revelation is making? How do we understand that? And lastly, how do we uh, apply that to our lives? Because ultimately, the book of Revelation, is its primary goal to give us a calendar? No, in fact, that's... we. We want the book of no. There is no apocalyptic literature. There is no eschatological literature in the New Testament that acu- that adequately satisfies our curiosity about how the end is going to come. Right. In fact, it is no. The New Testament is notoriously frustrating on that front every single time, uh, because Paul, Peter, and John, who are sort of our primary eschatologists in the New Testament, and Jesus, of course, um, <laughs> they're much more interested in. How do you conduct yourself now in light of the reality of the end than they are, let me give you enough information about the end so that you can write a screenplay or a series of fictional novels? Yeah, and so this is, to me, one of the problems with the way we categorize our understanding of the book of Revelation or of eschatology, because we categorize it via our understanding of a calendar of events. And so to me, this is why... When we deal with the book of Revelation, we can never lose sight of the fact that in some way it is a message to us now about how to live in light of what God is unfolding, what he's revealing uh, in uh, in the end. Yeah. One of the things apocalypses always do, it's not the only thing, but one of the things they do is they explain the world as it is. Hmm. So one of my favorite visions, uh, sequences of visions in the book of Revelation is um, Revelation 12 where we have the vision of, of Israel, Mary, if you like, but she's got 12, the woman has 12 stars in her crown. And so this is probably Israel, and she's waiting to give birth to the Messiah, and the dragon is there waiting to devour the child. But God sweeps the child up to heaven in the vision and sweeps uh, the woman out into the wilderness for 1,260 days. And then there's a war in heaven, and a third of the stars are cast down, and Michael battles the dragon, and John identifies the dragon as Satan. Um, and it's just sort of this vivid sort of... Um, uh, replay, I guess, of, mm-hmm. of sort of the, the story of but the, the, of the world between the advents. And he then John explains, this voice from heaven explains what all this is about. And it says, you know, uh, the, the, the sanctified in heaven cry out rejoicing that um, the enemy has been cast down and destroyed. But then the voice says, but woe to you who are down here on the earth because he's here and he's angry and his time is short. And that is the reality of living in this fallen world. After Christ has come, before he returns, uh, we are the ones who get to proclaim the good news of the book of Revelation. And think about what an encouragement that would be. I mean, these are people who are watching all of their Christian brothers be murdered right? um, and are wondering, is this the end? Is this the end of the world? Is this the end of Christianity? And John says, no, no, understand there, there is great evil in the world, and here's why. But the reason why things look so bleak now is because um, Satan's back, evil's back, has been entirely broken, mm. and it's thrashing around and doing great damage. Um, but the uh, the victory is already assured. Uh, they overcome him. They overcame him by the uh, um, you know by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Um, right. And that was true for them, and it's true for us now. Well, with that, that's a great way to, to finish our discussion here of Revelation. It's very clear that uh, this is a book we're only beginning to tap into. If you enjoy studying New Testament, I want to encourage you, come join us at Charleston Southern. Uh, Dr. Gravely is a magnificent man and a great scholar, and we're glad well, to have you. you here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, well until next time, uh, we'll, uh, uh, we hope you can join us at our next time, we'll say it that way, at churchandgospel.com. Thank you for being with us. 